0: following message by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Um, so uh, I'm going to be continuing our mini-series on the Lord's Prayer today with uh, one verse, Matthew 6.10. And it's the second line of the Lord's Prayer. It's your kingdom come your will be done, and can you guys finish it for me, on, that's right, on earth as it is in heaven. And I think for many of us who have grown up in the church, this prayer has likely become somewhat of a cliche, right? Uh, it's something that we can recite mindlessly. And let's be honest, how often do we appreciate the purpose of this prayer and the power behind it? And I could understand why this may be a struggle for, for many of us on some levels. In some ways, This prayer feels so far removed from our world that it can seem irrelevant to us. I mean, who says, hallowed be thy name anymore, right? I mean, maybe the closest we come to it is when we talk about Halloween, right? But the truth is, this little prayer addresses so many of the things that not only consumed the people of Jesus' day, but the very things that consume us today, in the here and now. Because just like then, we also live in a world that is filled with injustice, with greed, broken relationships, addictions, where it seems like sin and evil are winning the day. And this, this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, cries out to God from that place. And it puts into words the deepest cries of our hearts. So I want us to keep this in mind as we open together, as we did last week, by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. And I want us to just try to do it a little more slowly and a little more meditatively than maybe... We're used to doing it. So let's read this together and pray this together in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. This is in the NIV. Our Father in heaven, together, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one amen amen i think within this prayer we can hear the cries for love for purpose for provision for reconciliation and deliverance and this prayer is i think is very relevant for us today because i think we all want those things And if you don't believe that the world is crying out for these things, then I think you don't have to look any further than the number one show on Netflix today, Squid Game. Have you guys heard of Squid Game? I mean, it's like everywhere. And it's not just the number one show in the U.S., number one in 90 countries today. So many people I know are talking about this show, and so as a part of my research for this sermon, I dedicated myself to watching this show over the last couple of weeks. (laughs) And, And I finished it last week, and here's my conclusion. I think the only explanation for the global popularity of this Squid Game show is that it speaks to universal problems that span across all cultures and all times. And what it does, I think, is that it confronts us with the evil condition of the human heart and the brokenness of the world we live in in such graphic and disturbing and violent ways that we can't ignore it. And I think in its own way, through its own medium, It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer, right? Now, hear me out before you judge me here. It's it's like the Lord's Prayer in that it is also a cry for love and for justice and for freedom from debt, for reconciliation and deliverance. But it's not really a prayer, is it? Because it's, it's not a cry that is directed towards God. It is just the universal cry of the human heart, which crosses all continents and all cultures, and I'm not going to spoil it for, for you today, and, and I know we got the youth group in the room. Let me just say publicly, I would not recommend this to anyone who's not an adult. But the basic premise of this whole series is that you have a group of people who find themselves so far in financial debt that they somewhat unknowingly enter this deadly survival contest to climb out of their debt. And so they play these children's games to, to advance. And in the end, only one winner survives and gets the jackpot of money, which amounts to about $40 U.S. dollars. And one of the themes this series explores is is the depravity of the human heart, which is exposed in its most raw nature when it's in survival mode. And the show does a great job of exploring several characters to understand their motivations and their fears and how they choose to play this game. I mean, what would you do if you were saddled with insurmountable amounts of debt? And could win so much money that you would be set for life. How do you do the right thing when you find yourself in a zero-sum game? Where for me to win, someone else has to lose. Or maybe to put it more crassly, for me to live, someone else has to die. And that's the internal battle that we see in so many of the characters in this show. That they struggle through in their own ways, in their quest for survival and for riches. And this is the way of the world, isn't it? It's maybe pictured in more graphic and violent terms, but this is the way of the world. And then Jesus comes along, and he teaches a different way. In fact, he declares himself as the way. And I don't know if you knew this, but the book of Acts actually tells us that this is actually how many in the first century would refer uh, to Christians and describe Christianity as the way and disciples of the way. And what is the way of Jesus? Jesus. Well, if the way of the world is someone must die in order for me to live, then the way of Jesus is I must die. I must die to myself so that others might live. And this is this is the upside down kingdom of Jesus. And, you know, I think it sometimes it feels like that, right? It feels upside down. Following Jesus at times seems like a loser's game. What do we have to gain if we're always the one who has to turn the other cheek? If we're always the one who has to give up our cloak? If we're always the one who has to gouge out our eye and cut off our arm to follow him? And we're left with this impossible standard. And we're all trying to make it in this dog-eat-dog world. So how can we walk in the way that God calls us to? How do you do the right thing when you feel like you must lose in order for others to win? Do any of us take the Sermon on the Mount seriously? Is it foolish to expect anyone to actually live this out? And if you're asking these things, you know, I agree 100%. I'm right there with you. And as a pastor, sometimes I wonder, not only if I can get, you know, us as a church to live this out, but can I live this out? Can I live out kingdom ethics in a world that seems to punish you for it? Can I obey God when it seems like there's so much to lose? And this is exactly why we pray this prayer. This particular line in this prayer is so important. Because at the heart of this prayer, I believe, is the answer to these questions. Because the truth is we cannot cannot obey these impossible demands on our own strength. And Jesus knows this. And this is why he instructs his disciples to pray in this way. We have to ask God for the impossible. We have to ask God to align our heart and our will with his heart and his will and this can only happen in prayer so before we unpack this part of the lord's prayer uh, which i believe is really the linchpin of this entire prayer i think it would be helpful to first define the terms that are presented in this part of the prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so what is the kingdom of god or the kingdom of heaven what does it mean to pray for this to come What is God's will that we are praying will be done? What is heaven and earth in light of God's kingdom and God's will? And so instead of flashing up a bunch of slides with definitions of these terms, I thought it would be more helpful to actually play a Bible Project video entitled Heaven and Earth. And if you've been at our church for more than a year, you might recall this topic as one of the early ones in our Bible Project sermon series. And when I went back to look at it, I realized Pastor Steve preached on this, and he showed this video exactly one year ago. It's kind of ironic, huh? October 18th of 2020 so I know this may be redundant for many of you but I want to show it again because I think this is a great refresher of some very key ideas that will help us understand this prayer and personally as someone who's more of a visual learner uh, I really appreciate how the Bible project explains some of these weighty concepts in a way that's easy to understand and so let's watch the video together.
1: which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that
2: results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird.
1: to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again.
0: Okay, so I know there's a lot there, but I think, again, this is so important to understand uh, as a part of understanding this, this prayer, Lord's Prayer. And a few key takeaways from this video I want us to remember is is one that heaven and earth are defined as God's space, right, and our space. And heaven is defined as the place where God dwells, a place where everything and everyone obeys God's will perfectly, while earth is largely defined as man's space, right, where sin runs rampant and ruins God's good creation. God's will is not obeyed perfectly, which grieves God, because in this sin-filled world we reject God and we harm one another. And these two spaces were once joined together, but heaven and earth have been separated by sin since the fall of Adam and Eve. But from that moment on, God has been on a mission to bring heaven and earth back together again. And this mission was carried out by God's son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, who made his dwelling among us. And as our church, you know, named Emmanuel, God with us suggests. And so Jesus is where heaven and earth overlap. And when Jesus was here, through his life and his teaching and his healing ministry, he was creating, as I said, these little pockets of heaven where people can witness and experience God's power and God's presence. And this is God's great mission for Jesus and for us as his royal priests, that we would continue in that work of bringing heaven to earth until Jesus returns and heaven and earth become one again. And this is is the grand story of the Bible. And so with these takeaways in mind, when we look at this verse again, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's very consistent with these ideas, isn't it? God's kingdom, his rule, and his reign cannot be separated from his will. They are essentially one and the same. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray like this, he's not asking us to recognize that he is an all-powerful God and sovereign by praying this prayer with, like, helpless resignation. Like, oh, God, your will be done. You're God, right? So now let's get on with my needs. No, by instructing us to pray, your kingdom come, Jesus is reminding us and reorienting us towards the grander mission that we are called to, to bring heaven, that is the power and the presence of God, near. Or as Jesus says, pray that his kingdom would come. And by asking us to pray, your will be done, Jesus is showing us how this is actually accomplished. It's through a battle of the wills. My will, and God's will. And I think maybe this isn't, you know, hard, this is hard to see in the verse itself. So let me reframe this a bit so that we can better see how our will might be connected to this, this prayer. Um, Matthew 6, 10 again, your kingdom come, your will be done. That is not my will, not my desires, not my goals and my agenda, but your will, O Lord. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you understand God's will as being pitted up against my will, you also begin to understand this prayer in a deeply personal way that gets to the very heart of discipleship and living out the Christian life. You see, Jesus is calling us as his disciples to wholly submit to his rule and reign and align our will with his will. And it's easy to gloss over this, but this is not a small thing. And this is not an easy thing to pray. And Jesus knows this is important. And that's why later in chapter 7, as he's concluding the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? Who enters? Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is almost the exact same language of his prayer, isn't it? And again later in Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus describes those who do the will of God as superseding even his closest earthly relationships. And he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he or she is my brother, sister, and mother. So clearly, doing the will of the Father is important. So important that we are to pray for it, and we are to do it. But what is the will of the Father exactly? And I want to be clear when talking about God's will here because this word, you know, the will of God, is used a lot in the Bible in different ways. But two of the most common ways it's used is as God's will of purpose and God's will of desire, and I'm going to get a little technical here, but please try and stay with me because I think this is important, again, in shaping how we pray this prayer. So we have God's will of purpose, and this is sometimes also known as God's decretive will or God's hidden will or God's sovereign will. And God is divine sovereign, Lord over all things, has ordained everything that will happen, and he's decreed this before time began. And nothing can frustrate God's will of purpose. And so maybe some examples uh, would be it was God's will of purpose that Joseph would become a leader in Egypt and save his people from famine and that the Apostle Paul would suffer many things that he might see that Jesus is enough for him. And it was God's will of purpose that each of you were born on the day that you were born with the exact number of hairs on your head. And this is God's will of purpose. This is his sovereign will, and that cannot be thwarted. And then you have God's will of desire. That's also known as God's preceptive will or his revealed will. And God's will of desire is basically captured by his precepts or his commands or his laws. And so some examples of God's will of desire is that we would act justly, that we would love mercy, and that we would walk humbly with God. And this is his will, this is his will of desire. This is what he wants for us, that we would love God and that we would love our neighbor, that we would be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, along with all of the other one another commands in the New Testament. This is his desire for us. This is his preceptive and revealed will. And when God says, your will be done, it is this. It is his will of desire. We are praying that our will of desire would become his will of desire, and his will of desire would become our will of desire, and we would submit to his rule and his reign and seek first his righteousness. Why? Why? so that the pockets of heaven might invade earth through us in the same way that it did through Jesus. And this is what we are praying when we pray for your will of desire, not my will, not my desires, be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you see God's will being done as one and the same thing as doing what he says, you begin to understand why Jesus makes this connection between obeying and teaching the commands of God with the kingdom of heaven. In in Matthew 5, verses 19 through 20, he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see how it all fits together. This is the will of the Father, that we might do his will, his will of desire. And by obeying him, by walking in his wisdom and in his ways. And this is also why obeying his commands, not just making disciples, obeying his commands is so central to the Great Commission. You know, as the Gospel of Matthew comes to a close in chapter 28, Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? We often forget this last part teaching them to obey everything I've commanded in you. It's basically saying to do the will of the Father. You see, when, when we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, we are asking God to fulfill the great commission in and through us as we submit our will to His will, and as we obey His commands, and as we walk by the Spirit. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that God requires us to obey his commands in order for us to be saved. I am saying that those who place their trust in him and who call themselves a follower of Jesus will do just that. They will follow Jesus. They will follow his example by obeying his commands. A follower follows. And not like the Pharisees, but in a spirit-filled, spirit-led way because Jesus makes it clear. True disciples not only know the will of God, true disciples do the will of God. So now that we know what the prayer is asking of us, we are still faced with the challenge of obeying it, aren't we? And this takes us back to the opening questions of the sermon. like, How can we win in a game that we seem destined to lose if we play it God's way? We know we need to do the will of God. We know we need to obey him, but how do we even begin to do this? Well, the irony, I think, is that the only way to find the strength to obey, the only way to victory is to surrender, is to surrender. And it seems like the opposite, right, of the right answer. Have you ever seen a sports team that gets a win by saying at the very beginning of the match or game, like, hey, we forfeit, we surrender. Who wins at anything through surrender? But would you expect anything different from the upside-down kingdom? If the mark of a true disciple could be summed up in one word, I think that word would be surrender. And it's not just found in obeying God's rules or surrendering to his commands. It is found in being able to hear the voice of God in your life. To walk in the Spirit. And moment by moment, Because the battle of my will versus God's will, it's a daily battle, isn't it? And surrendering is surrendering that dream that we can't let go of. Surrendering that sin or addiction that has a hold of us. Surrendering that relationship that we refuse to reconcile. Surrendering any sense of meaning or identity or security apart from Christ. To Christ. Surrendering it to Christ. Surrender is the place where God's will begins and where my will ends. And when we pray, when we pray, your will be done, we are surrendering to God. We're surrendering to his way, his wisdom, his will. You know, I think one of the most powerful pictures that Jesus gives us of what surrender true surrender looks like I think is found a few chapters later in Matthew 11 and Jesus says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest and he says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and I am humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light So I think the obvious question here is, why does Jesus use the image of a yoke when he is asking people to come and follow him and find rest? And again, this seems upside down, doesn't it? Because a yoke is a symbol for work, not rest. Hard work. Why would Jesus use it as a metaphor for rest or something easy or light? I mean, do these oxen look happy to you? They look like they're about to get ready to work and not looking forward to it. A yoke was used by strong animals, usually oxen or horses, to do the hard labor of plowing a field or pulling a heavy cart. But what makes a yoke special is that it is a wooden cross piece. You get that? It's a wooden cross piece that you fasten over two animals that are generally equal in size and strength, and it unites them together to do the work together. So a yoke can be useful in sharing the load, but it's still work, isn't it? But the only way that a yoke can be easy and light, as Jesus describes his yoke, is when someone far stronger than you is doing all the work. But being under the same yoke as someone far stronger than me doesn't guarantee that the work will be easy for me, does it? Because why? Because I must not only become one with the one who is stronger than me, be yoked together, I must also be willing to go exactly where he wants me to go. That's the key. You know, uh, a couple months ago, we got a puppy, and um, I don't know how it happened. I swore after our last dog died, we're never going to get another dog. And for my birthday, I ended up with a puppy. I don't know how it came on my birthday, but we got a puppy for my birthday. And um, she's a very cute little cavapoo. We got her. She weighed like, I don't know, three pounds. I think she's like six pounds now. And we got, you know, we take her on walks, and she kind of walks around the neighborhood like she owns the place. And even though she's on a leash, like, she doesn't even know she's on a leash. She's just like, because we pretty much just, wherever she wants to go, we, you know, we let her go. And so I think our the puppy thinks that she's, like, the strongest, she's stronger than us, you know. Because in a way, like, we are kind of wrapped around our little finger. But once in a while, you know, she, every time she hears kids playing, she just, like, runs off. She wants to play. She's just drawn to children. And then we got to pull the leash and be like, no, you're not going there, right. And then she knows, like, uh, maybe she's not so strong after all, right? And I think it's kind of like that when we're yoked with Jesus. Like, it's really incomparable. He's so much stronger. He's so much greater. And if I'm yoked with Jesus and I try to move in a direction that he is not leading me to, there's nothing easy, there's nothing light about that. It's incredibly burdensome, and it's heavier than if I was just doing the work by myself. But do you understand the picture that Jesus is trying to give us here? And as his disciple, he wants us to become one. He wants us to be yoked together with him. He wants the two of us to become one. And he has called us for a purpose and a mission, but he has not left us alone to accomplish it. He has promised to come alongside us. And if we are willing to learn from him, as he says, to submit to his wisdom, to yield to his will, to follow his way, then the work will be easy and it will be light and it won't be burdensome at all. In fact, it will be restful and it will be life-giving because I will be moving in the same direction that God wants me to go and my will will be aligned with his will and his will will be done. And when we do this, what happens? Well, Jesus tells us what happens. When we do this, his kingdom Comes to earth just as it is in heaven. When we, as royal priests, submit to the King of Kings, when we yield to his will by obeying his commands, we will bring pockets of heaven to all the spaces we occupy on earth. And this is kind of a mystery, right? It's hard to imagine that because it's not like a kingdom that any of us would expect to see. Not a physical kingdom with a royal palace and a throne, at least not yet. And this is why Jesus says in Luke 17, he says this, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is what? It's in your midst. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? The whole world, even Jesus' disciples, were looking for Jesus to establish a kingdom by overthrowing their oppressors. A kingdom they could see and touch and point to and say, there it is. But Jesus is like, no, you're not going to observe my kingdom in that way. At least not now. That is not how my kingdom will come. It will begin with the least of these who have responded to my call to come, to follow me. And it will be built upon those who have surrendered their will and followed me. And it will flow through the poor in spirit, the mourning, and the meek and the merciful, the pure in heart and the peacemakers. And it will not come with grand displays of defiance, It will come with small acts of submission. It will come when you yield to the prompting of the Spirit to forgive and seek reconciliation instead of revenge. It will come when you are generous to someone in need and you don't need to be repaid and you don't need recognition. It will come when you defend those who don't have a voice to speak who don't have the power to stand. It will come when you show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve mercy. It will come when you have the courage to be a witness for Christ, to tell his story in the midst of your story. God's kingdom will not be won with swords and spears, and it will come instead with grace and truth. Heaven will not invade earth with the shout of an army of angels who stand ready, heaven will invade earth through the whispers of saints, kneeling in prayer, saying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, um, again, I'm grateful to Mike. Mike. For his willingness to share his testimony, um, I think it was a great example of what it means to surrender to the will of God and to live out this prayer. Whether it's seeking marriage counseling after years of resisting it, or responding to the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart and just getting back the spiritual disciplines despite his struggles through COVID, or even mustering up the courage to come up and share, I can see God's kingdom coming in his life through these small acts of of faith and obedience. And I want to just close with with one last personal story. You know, um, I've been serving as one of the pastors here at ICC for over six years now. And um, after spending almost 20 years in the corporate world, I remember vividly how difficult it was to answer the call into ministry. And not because it was so hard for me personally. I felt like God's call was so clear six years ago. But... It was hard because, um, you know, over time I saw how this calling and accepting this calling would affect the rest of my family who would struggle with with it. Because this calling was, it wasn't really their calling per se, but it was mine. And yet, it would affect their lives pretty drastically. And, you know, prior to becoming a pastor, we lived in a home that was um, our dream home. And it was out in Huntley, way out in like farm country and At that time, my wife Kim was homeschooling our three children. It was was like, I can't even call it a dream home. We never dreamed of owning a home like this. But it was the perfect home for us, and it was... It had over two acres, and it was in a private pond, and we stocked with fish and bass, and it was set on a hill, which is actually pretty unusual for this area. And it was actually a bank foreclosure, and so it was actually in really bad shape, and we got it for pretty cheap, and we renovated it, and we redid the landscaping. And, you know, when we bought the place, the, the whole place was just, like, overgrown with weeds. and They were, like, the size of the trees, these weeds. And over time, we planted these daylilies and these hostas and purple irises and those are my wife's favorite and, and flowers and this is my, my favorite picture of our backyard and I used to love walking around as the sun set and just being with God in this space and, and our kids loved it too and we put in a zip line and built a tree house and some of our best memories of this place would be holding our family reunions there and when I accepted a call into ministry, I knew we had to surrender all of that. We couldn't afford living there anymore, let alone pay the taxes on it. And so we sold it. And we ended up moving to Glenview, just not too far from here, so we could be closer to church. And um, is a small into a small town home that's about one-fourth the size of our last home. And don't get me wrong, we we're very grateful to be in Glenview, and that's a total God story, a provision from God in and of itself, which maybe I'll share another time, but... You know, my kids went from having their own rooms with their own queen beds to, like, now sharing rooms and having bunk beds. (laughs) And, um, you know, what I risked is I I, I missed having two acres of land and and then going from, like, having no land at all. Like, I actually missed mowing my lawn. (laughs) Um, But being cooped up in this small space, especially during uh, COVID, uh, just made us all kind of stir crazy. And so after a couple of months uh, in our townhome, we tried to reclaim kind of whatever space we could. We didn't have much space. But, you know, I thought, oh, man, we have this deck out here that we're not really utilizing. And so uh, it kind of sits, you know, above our garage. And so uh, a couple months after COVID started, uh, I went to Home Depot and I got these little planters that you can, you know, fix on top of um, these railings on our deck, and that's what I did. And so we kind of went from two acres to now having these little planters that are like one foot by two foot in size. But Kim and I were like so happy that we could plant some flowers and bring some life and beauty in the midst of COVID into our home, especially, you know, during the pandemic. And so, you know, that's just part of our life and part of our story. And this past week, you know, I was out with Kim, and we were walking our, our, our dog, and she pointed out to me that the flowers that we had planted on our deck had um, germinated um, throughout our n- little neighborhood. And the seeds had kind of found their way into all these little spots in our cul-de-sac, our concrete cul-de-sac. <laughs> and now our flowers were growing everywhere in the middle of, of, of this concrete cul-de-sac. You can find our flowers growing even in these rocky little crevices. And, and it dawned on me, you know, yesterday, as I was preparing the sermon, that, you know, th- this is like a picture parable. Of what it means for the kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven we we gave up our dream home we had to surrender our garden of eden and we now lived in this cramped space under what feels like a curse under this global pandemic and we wanted to bring some of god's beauty back into it but it struck me that jesus did exactly that more so jesus laid aside his Majesty. And he entered into our broken space. And he brought his beauty into it. And as we surrender ourselves to the spirit. And as we align our will with his will. And obey whatever he calls us to do. He will do the work of bringing about pockets of heaven. All throughout the spaces on earth that we occupy. And we will see his power. And his presence manifests itself in places that we would never expect. But it will not come easy. It requires a clash of wills, of our will and God's will. And our will must bend to his will day by day, moment by moment. And this will only happen when we faithfully pray as he instructed us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth As it is in heaven. Let's bow our heads together. I want to invite the worship team to come. And I want to ask us to just yield in this moment to the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you. Because I know there are many of you in this room Who are in the midst of a a losing battle in which your will is up against God's will and you know it? And you're tired and you're exhausted and you feel burdened and heavy laden. What is your will? right now in this moment that you know in your heart of hearts is up against the will of God and you are unwilling to surrender. When you yield to the prompting of the spirit, to forgive someone that needs your forgiveness. When you seek reconciliation instead of revenge yield to that will. Yield to his will. When God is asking you to be generous with your time and your resources with your money because someone is in need don't need the recognition. You don't need to be repaid. Yield to that will. When someone needs to be shown mercy and they they don't deserve it and everyone in the world tells you so but the Lord is telling you to show mercy. is writing a story in this moment in your life and yet you don't have the courage to share it with your family, with your children, with this church. And you are robbing God of his glory. Let us pray in this moment your your will be done. Give you just one minute, just one minute in the quietness of your hearts to let the will of God overwhelm your will, to surrender to His voice and let Him lift that burden off of you, take on His yoke, let Him go the way He is leading you, don't resist. place you will find rest. In that place you will find his power and his presence. Just one minute. Let's take a moment. Let's pray this prayer. immediately after the last supper we find Jesus at the garden of Gethsemane and there we see the ultimate clash of two wills it's the son of God against God the father and Jesus demonstrates for exact to us exactly what he is asking of us. You see God the Father is asking his son to do something that even Jesus feels overwhelmed by. To go cool the way of the cross. So much so that Jesus says to his disciples, you know, my soul is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. But I want you to hear the prayer that Jesus prays. In that garden, all alone, says he fell with his face to the ground. And he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And listen, he he ends with this. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. There was no other way. Jesus alone is the way. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus gave up his body and his blood so that it might be possible for us to be yoked with him. And so I want to invite you to take the elements. If you have it in front of you, let us remember his broken body. His poured out blood. Let us take the elements together. And after a moment, our worship team will close us with a time of singing. So let's take this together.